You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You're on Breakfasters with Steve White, Alicia Sometimes, and the teddy bear in the rocking chair, which is Declan. He's unwell at the moment, so he can't be with us. And this is our podcast for the week, April 27th to May the 1st. We spoke to Nick Fike about the 10th anniversary of the monthly. Vanessa Taholka talked about battery life in technology. Scott Egger talked gaming in a way. I just kind of, I got there almost at the end. (laughs) Max Schumann talked about printed matter as part of the Melbourne Art Book Fair. It's that time where we talk tech with knowledge manager and triple R superstar, Vanessa Taholka. How are you? I'm very well. Good morning, everyone. Morning. You are a manager of knowledge. Your wealth of uh, information. (laughs) is quite incredible. Um, What are we talking about today? Today we're talking about batteries, a very common um, thing that I get asked about and and something that frustrates people a little bit, I think. Mm. So what is it about batteries? Your battery doesn't run out. uh, Yeah, Yeah, on the device that I'm staring at right now. Uh, Look, I think the thing with batteries is that they're so uh, ubiquitous with all our consumer devices. But they're actually a really interesting technology space because they're such a mature technology in a lot of ways. So the reason they're so mature is probably if we look back at the history, um, modern batteries date back to the 18th century. Uh, Scientists stumbled across ways to harness static electricity by inserting metal rods into jars coated with foil on both sides and filled with salt water. And they could touch these jars and create a shock and they'd use them in, you know, little scary stalls to freak people out and uh, Mm. they were known as Leyden jars. Or to um, animate Frankensteins. Well, you know, Mary Shelley was quite um, inspired by this technology Mm. actually. Um, So this was an electrochemical reaction and that's still the way that batteries work today. So batteries are really constrained by chemistry and physics. Um, In 1799, Alessandro Volta invented the first widely used battery, the voltaic pile, and he stacked plates of zinc and copper separated by cloth or cardboard soaked in salt water. So once again, this is the same sort of reaction. He'd moved the technology forward in that he'd created a stable electric current. And so this was much more useful and people could, you know, create lots of different banks of these. There were limits to how big they could get because just Mm. physically these little plates would stack on top of each other and squash the water out of the uh, materials in between and then you wouldn't have something to conduct through so this is where you start looking at the constraints of battery technology obviously nowadays we've got all these tiny little batteries um, but they've only got so much power Um, the more recent technology we've had is the lithium iron batteries which are so much lighter than your alkaline batteries Uh, they carry a lot more charge and it's always about trying to push those constraints of how light is something and how much charge can we get out of it so sometimes small is not better you can't necessarily pack more energy into something that's super tiny so, guys, you know, have you heard a lot of uh, superstition about charging wisdom and, and Absolutely. things? Absolutely. I've always heard that you don't charge your device up to uh, leave it on forever. Otherwise, it's supposed to drain or mm. you train your battery. Apparently, this is what I've been reading. You train your battery to get to a certain level. Is yeah. this true? Well, it seems like um, there's a lot of mythology around oh, how to make your battery last longer. With lithium-ion ones, there are some things that we know uh, – Some people recommend fully charging new batteries for the first three cycles, and then the rest of the time, a partial charge is completely fine. Uh, So that's that's great for people. They don't have to pay so much attention. 
some people go to the extent of recommending that you pull a charged um, battery out of your laptop when you're running it via electricity. Now, the reason is things like laptops run pretty hot. They're right next to the processors. And temperature is something that's mm. really important for these batteries. You don't want them exposed to too much of that. Now, most of us have laptops that we're not going to bother pulling our batteries out of just because we're, we're charging it. And yeah, So some of the advice is just really a little bit impractical, I think. Uh, but you do want to avoid exposure to extreme temperatures, so no leaving it in the hot car. This is why your devices will refuse to turn on. They're trying to protect themselves. Lithium-ion batteries in particular um, have been known under stressed situations to burst Ignite. into flames. Yeah, that's why mm. you, they don't have a whole plane load of lithium, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So another thing is treating them gently. You know, uh, People worry about the battery life of things like your old iPods that you couldn't change the battery in. And that's because you're running with them, they're jostling, all this sort of stuff actually does decrease the life of um, of a battery. Um, so we, these days we're trying to attack it with uh, more efficient software and uh, using like low energy modes and decreasing the brightness of things. And they're the sort of things that we get told. But why haven't these battery technologies improved? Um, I guess we could say that uh, until now most major battery advances have come from using new materials. Mm-hmm. So when we shifted from alkaline sort of things to lithium-based batteries, that was a big jump. But we're constrained by the periodic table. People are experimenting a lot with um, silicon at the moment also. But Don't say plutonium. <laughs> no, that would be a completely different sort of power, I think. What yeah. was that in the Starship Enterprise or something? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> oh, no, it was in Back to the Future. Back to the, Back future. To the future, definitely. Um, so some of the things that we have to worry about is storing lots of energies in small spaces is inherently unsafe. So when people experiment with new chemicals and materials in batteries... First of all, they find something that works and they're like, well, can I scale it? You know, can I, can I have this working across this much? Is it cost effective to do this? Um, and at what temperature does the chemical reaction get optimised? Because people want to operate it in real life. They don't want to operate it in lab mm. conditions. Or a fridge. Absolutely. So pretty much you can see that lithium-ion battery technology has improved considerably, at least in the last two decades. But now it's slowed. Uh, What that's meant is that um, we haven't got a new technology for consumers right now, but those batteries are a lot more affordable than they Mm. used to be, which is great. Uh, But modern smartphones and other electronic devices that we use tend to use a lot more power than they used to also. So that's kind of cancelled out. I think that feeling that we've made a lot of progress. The battery had to get smaller to go with it. This is exactly the problem that you're seeing. Yeah. So some of the most promising new battery technologies um, are things that are coming out of research into electric car power. Those are battery-powered. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2009, you saw IBM pledging half a million dollars to work on the Battery 500 project, which is an attempt to invent batteries to propel a car 500 miles. Now, that's like 400 and something kilometres, I think. Is that right? Oh, I don't know. My my um, imperial translations yeah, <laughs> in the head aren't very good. Uh, but... Um, that's kind of cool that they're spending that much money. They're looking at lithium air batteries. Now, you, you would think if they could perfect some kind of battery that uh, had that much duration, then they could get a, a smaller version that you know would have a, a, a longer, a reasonable life. amount. Yeah. yeah, and not only are people looking at car batteries, they're also potentially looking at home storage batteries. So that if you have solar cells or wind power mm. attached to your house, you can um, maybe offset some of those low times and um, you know add to the storage during peak sort of use. You can sort of 
get some from your battery and some immediately from what's being generated. But if these batteries are in the car that go 104.672K yeah. or 500 miles, yeah. um, is it going to be like our computer battery where just over time it gets less and less and less? Is that the... Is that the absolute expected life of a battery that it's going to get worse? No, I think um, it's not really... It won't be a, a memory issue. It'll be an age issue. Mm-hmm. A lot of these batteries, it's just um, the age will deteriorate the performance, which is why if you get a couple of batteries to take with your camera around the world, it's kind of better not to really have um, them bought at the same time. You know, buy one, start noticing the performance uh, degrading, maybe get another one six months later. That might be more practical. It's interesting. Yeah. So with the IBM project, uh, they're looking at, say, lithium air, which would require um, pure air to kind of keep energy consistent. Now, that's a, that's a big ask. It's so, fascinating. And it kind of adds weight to the battery process. Um, that's kind of an interesting one to look at. So the containers are kind of filled with lithium, um, and it's... There's more lithium than, say, in the lithium-ion batteries, so the percentages have changed. Um, Volkswagen's looking at those for their electric cars, for example. But people at MIT, uh, University of Texas and Stanford, are looking at the silicon anode uh, solution, which is just having silicon in there somehow, you know, in some other um, configuration. And that is exactly what you're talking about, Steve, where your devices are going to get a little bit thicker Mm -hmm. um, if they go that way. So... Tesla is expected to make a massive announcement on the 30th of April, um, and they said it's not going to be a car announcement, and people are speculating that this is going to be Tesla's home battery solution type announcement. So it's always interesting to hear what Elon Musk is thinking of. Mm. Um, It's probably going to be the massively um, priced uh, home consumer device, and if he puts that out there, I guess we can expect to see more competition in that market as well and, and people putting in, you know, cheaper home storage solutions. Can you keep us abreast of that I'll do announcement? my best. Absolutely. Thank you. Talking batteries, so I just want one final question. Mm. Um, can you keep something charged overnight or does that make it deteriorate if it just gets to the 100% and then some? Um, that's fine, say, for your, for your mobile phones and what have you. It's more if you're storing a battery not with a device, it's recommended that you don't keep it charged at 100%. Somewhere around the 40% mark's really good and you can keep it quite cool. Some people even say refrigerator cool. We live in Melbourne. We can just leave it out on a shelf or something. It's not in the sun. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Vanessa Toholka, Talking Tech, and here on Wednesday nights with Bite Into It. You're listening to Triple R. You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3 Triple R. We're going to get cake and balloons because you know what, Steve White, it is the monthly's 10th anniversary and an issue has hit the stands and here to talk about it is the editor of the monthly magazine, Nick Fike. Thanks for coming in. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You look all um, rugged up there, a little bit chilly outside. It's a a Melbourne morning, isn't it? (laughs) It certainly is. (laughs) Now, this had me when George Megalogenis writing about, uh, well, his uh, essay, History Repeats, had the Labor Party and he said, all tweets, no meat. It won me over immediately. It is a Starfield issue. Tell us a little bit about putting it together. Well, it was uh, at the start of this year I realised someone said, oh, you know, we turned 10 this year. I thought, oh, this is a good opportunity to approach some authors. And yeah, a lot of people uh, that have written for the monthly over over the years... Um, 
really appreciated, um, you know, being asked. I think, and of course, there are a whole bunch of people that you that, uh, that you can never fit as many people in as you'd like. But we we did have a bumper issue, so mm-hmm. it's an extra ten thousand words, and um, and a whole bunch of, of our you know of our favourites uh, return for this issue. Well, so. people might expect uh, for a tenth anniversary that you print like a best of collection, but instead you've kind of gone for a best of your writers writing new material. Yeah, that's it. Uh, I'm always wary of that self-congratulatory <laughs> thing. I mean, I know that we put out a 10th anniversary issue, but I was, I was, it, it was very clear to me that we should be celebrating things other than ourselves in this issue. So mm. you want to look back across 10 years of politics. So, and people like George Megalogenis and Robert Mann are the best people to 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 give the last 10 years some perspective so Megalogenis was writing it was his first media piece of political commentary uh, on print for about two and a half years and um, and he took the opportunity to uh, to give us some um, straight talking. Well he certainly does and it's it, the two you mentioned, George Megalogenis and Robert Mann, look back on uh, say Kevin Rudd writing in the monthly because that was such a coup, I think it was mm. you know around 2006 or 7 that he wrote about religion and uh, certainly asylum seekers and you know talk, it, it's an interesting look back at, at the past because you've had some amazing authors over the years how do you sort of look and commission these works well i think ideally you you want to know what the writers really care most about and you need to know what what they're up to what they're thinking about at the moment and hopefully you hit that sweet spot where you say to someone would you be interested in writing about x and they say that's what i've been thinking about or or it comes out of a conversation so uh, annabelle crabb's piece about shamelessness was this idea that she's been brewing up for for you know a year or so since she wrote her book and uh She'd been touring around and noticing the distinctly different responses that she was getting when she spoke publicly about uh, about her book, The Wife Trout, and she realised that it's uh, that that men come up and tell her things, and women come up and and ask her things after after she speaks publicly. So she'd been sort of brewing this idea up. So we, we chatted about it, and I said, "Please, you know, write that." I love that she talks about mansplaining and ladiesplaining, which is really <laughs> interesting too. Uh, Helen Garner writes on age, which is so beautiful and witty and of course you get the humour that you expect but I love that Robert Forster says you know what Air Supply was a good name for a band <laughs> and he writes about that but that would have thought yeah I know it's so beautiful I know Robert Forster he uh well I'm a secret Air Supply fan. This is oh, my favourite. Okay. My favourite. Oh, right. car- my karaoke Steve. song is "Lost in Love." <laughs> <laughs> and when so he said, he said, "I've got this idea for a piece, and it just occurred to me." And yeah, we had this slot in the magazine that's for strange little oddities and observations. And he said, "I realised that." Air Supply is a really great name for a band. I, I really want to write about it. I said, that'd be great. Don't make it a long piece. Make it a short one. <laughs> imagine that. It's 5,000 words on uh, why Air Supply is a great name. He said, imagine how badly that could have gone wrong. Two guys called Russell. Hmm. <laughs> the Russells. <laughs> yeah, well, well, they were good, you know, for what they did. If you, if you look at the category... They wrote some they were mighty fine big Big stars in, in the States. Yeah, they, they were, were one of Australia's... 10 or 20 biggest sellers ever. They became so big that a member had to leave. They used to be a trio. 
Really? Like, you know, mm. a band's big when someone has to leave. Of course, one of my favourite writers of all time, David Mars, in this. Uh, he's written for the monthly over the years. Mm. And he writes about David Malouf, uh, who, you know, is someone that I would love to have writing in the monthly. Um, but David has, David Malouf has written, uh, three, a series of three books that are sort of short non-fiction essay style mm. pieces. And David Mars, t- taking the opportunity to look back across his career. So it's a, it's a tribute in some they're great books. Mm. I, I've read them. But second to David Malouf, surely, is Tim Winton. I mean, what a coup. Yeah, well, really. I think, I mean, we benefited because we are able to long to run genuinely long-form material. So Tim Winton's piece was a 7,500-word essay. I think he wanted to see it in print. Uh, he has written long pieces for us before. So, again, when I approached him, it, it's very hard. I'm, you know, how do you pitch to Tim Winton? You don't say, could you write about you know, fishing or something? So you say, I, I'd really love to you know, run your work in the monthly. And he happened to have this piece that he's been working on for several years. It's it's a really personal piece of his. It's about how his life was shaped by these literal traffic accidents that have occurred, three in particular. And as you can see when you read it, it's very close to uh, to his heart. And he's thought a long time about how these sorts of things have affected how he grew up. And I like it too because out of all the pieces it's it's like a literary essay so you get into the the world of Tim Winton and you feel like you're in a fiction piece but it's actually real. Now you came on board last year, is that yeah. right? So w- when you come on to something with such a history behind and such a prestigious history, what do you hope to do with the magazine? What, do you, uh, what are your hopes and dreams? Mm-hmm. Well, to continue, to continue it. Uh, I, I didn't come in thinking that things needed to be radically different. Uh, I think it's always a challenge to run a magazine like this. At when, when the magazine started, there were several other magazines in that sort of general market category, so business, current affairs, politics. There was the Bulletin, there were Time Magazine Australia. Those, they don't exist anymore. As, uh, we sit in kind of a category of our own in Australia, and that's to how difficult it is to get the number of people buying and reading that will that will sustain it. So it was not that I thought the magazine needed a radically different uh, editorial direction. It, it, it sort of hasn't. From I think it's it's uh, that hasn't been a problem. It's a case of keeping it fresh and keeping it moving and getting new writers and and trying to keep the old ones. So every editor comes in and they they have the opportunity to reapproach older writers who might have slipped by the wayside or something. So so it's in newsagents, of course, and and uh, great bookstores. Uh, is there any plan to have any live events, or is it just about celebrating the issue on the stands? No, look, it's really about it's about the writing and about and about this issue, and uh, and I think um, <clears throat> we. It, it has to be, in the end, about the writers and the readers. And so it, this isn't an issue that's about saying, look what we've done. It's, it's not about that. It's about how good writing can be in Australia and, and about how good political analysis can be. And I think you know, I think we managed as, as good an issue as I, as I could have managed. It's a fabulous issue. And as we said, it has Tim Winton, Helen Garner, Noel Pearson, Annabelle Crabb, Robert Forster, uh, Tim Flannery. It's, it's, it's an amazing issue. Thanks. We've been speaking to Nick Fike, who's editor of the monthly magazine. Thanks for coming in. Thanks so much, Alicia. Thanks, Steve. Three Triple R. And who's
Who's that getting out of the car? The Genius Squad is helmed today with Triple R's own Scott Edgar. How are you? <laughs> How are you? I'm very pleased to be part of a Genius Squad. You, well, Look, you're a squad and you're a genius. Oh, like, what yeah. more could you ask for in life? <laughs> now, I had this as an introduction for this segment. Yep. Um, it's distribution and pricing trends starting out with this week's hoo-ha regarding Steam selling Skyrim mods. That is just made-up words. <laughs> yes. <laughs> At least you didn't understand a single I, word. Look, I, I did slightly make that a bit opaque just, just as a bit of a, a, you know, just because it amused me to send it last night at, at six o'clock. But I, 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 I will talk about that. Are you guys across uh, a gentleman by the name of Gabe Newell? No. I'm here to talk about video, you know, yeah, video, video games. games. Look, yeah. I that, know maths and I know astronomy. I know animals, but I know nothing of gaming. You are going to enlighten me. Great. I, I know Steam and I know Skyrim, but I, this Gabe character, is he behind Steam? So Gabe, yes, Gabe Newell's been a big sort of figure in the video game uh, industry for many years, and he runs a company called Valve, and he started out as a modder. Now, Please mo- tell me what that is. <laughs> okay, so modder, modding is short for modification of games, and it's been a, a, a part of games culture for many, many years. I remember modding a game called Quake back in... No, Doom, actually. I think Doom. You, you could mod Doom, mm. change the artwork Because uh, yeah, they used to, Like dungeon crawlers, you used to be able to uh, make your own yes. using the sort of structure yeah. and yeah. map it yourself. And, and very quickly, games companies realised that the, the public were pretty keen to sort of put their own stamp on the games and, and, and make them their own. And so they would actually release tools that allowed you to do that and it became a huge community. So I remember making a, a, a mod for Quake, which was the other guys in my band running around being able to shoot them mm-hmm. and pick up guitars <laughs> as rewards. Um, you know, and right, right up to, you know, entire redesigns of games. Like there was a game called Half-Life, which Valve released, and there was a, a mod, I can't remember what it was called, but it actually took the whole game, which was set in a sort of science lab gone wrong, and... Made it a space combat game, changed every aspect of it, just using the game as a sort of starting point. And so, this is a huge community now, the modding community. Uh, And it's a very valuable pool that companies will go and see who's being really creative, who's doing, you know, amazing technical work, telling stories. At every level, it's a great pool of, 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 of human resource for people to actually get their start, you know, demoing their, their skills in, in the modding community. And so recently, so this is so we go back to Gabe Newell. He started as a modder, and then he made this game Half-Life, which was huge, and then Half-Life 2, which was huge, and other games like, um, I think, Team Fortress might have been a Valve game, and then they created uh, an online uh, distribution sort of hub called Steam, which is part of Gabe's very aggressive uh, attitude to re uh, kind of configuring the way the, the games industry works, the games community. And I think we talked about Steam last time I was in as well. Yeah. Oh, please explain Steam again. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's an odd platform, isn't it? Because yeah. it's starting to get a little bit of bad press because of the fact that you don't really kind of own, you know, you, you, you can <laughs> buy into Steam, but then you don't own, officially own for yourself. You have to always go through Steam to play the game or to play the game. Yeah. Mod. Well, this is actually a, in music as well. There's a mm. lot of sort of, there's a big question mark over iTunes about whether once you buy a song, do you own it or have you mm. in fact just licensed it for mm. the period of your lifetime? You know, uh, it, it, it's a, such an ephemeral mm. kind of thing to try and get your head around anyway, the idea of owning music or owning a kind of a 
an idea, you know, get products are so non-touchy-feely these days. Mm. It's, very, it's kind of a really abstract sort of thought. But, yeah, there's that aspect of Steam is kind of odd. Am I just borrowing this game? Have I bought it? But what it does do is really aggressively uh, promote community. It, it breaks down the whole sort of infrastructure of the bricks and mortar um, uh, distribution sort of network that's usually between you and creators, and it's just, which is the same as what's happening in, in music. The difference being in games, there's a lot more sort of aggressive sort of forward thinkers about what the technology can do for the industry rather than trying to sort of um, resist it, which you get in a lot of the other media. So, and Gabe's, Gabe's one of these people. So, what happened? The hoo ha referred to mm-hmm. in Thank you. Text I'm breaking down every word here. <laughs> hoo ha means. Is that Steam this week tried to implement a system? Was that their logic was. Okay, there's all these great people out there making, putting heaps of time into into uh, modding games and creating their own sort of angles and, and, and ways of using the game and, and, and really being very creative. But it's also a huge time sort of commitment. So let's make it, let's try and make it viable for these people to make some money out of that so that they can start doing it more full time and, and, you know, sort of ease that, that, that transition between being a, quote, amateur and, 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 and into a professional sort of pursuit, which a lot of the standard of work that's going on is definitely uh, at that level. So they've gone with a game called Skyrim, which is a huge open world game, totally um, very vibrant modding community out there. Lots of people making all sorts of different sort of... Uh, <laughs> hilarious mods. Hilarious yeah, mods. And right. some disturbing ones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's just a bit of everything. So Steam have now made it possible to charge for those mods. Uh, they've created a sort of monetary gateway um, for people. Now, in theory, this should be... I mean, the the kind of idea behind it is is pretty solid. Let's make it possible for people to make money out of their creative hard work that they do. But um, it's become a huge... uh, I think Gabe Newell got back to his his email after, you know, going to a doctor's appointment, found himself with 54,000 emails or something trying to... Uh, so he's angered the internet. What, so what's their problem? He, d- he doesn't own Skyrim, so he shouldn't start... Well, no, he and B- Bethesda, who created Skyrim and Steam, were very much on in cahoots this on this. Okay, yeah, right. yeah, they, they, it was, it was a, it was People a joint idea. People feel that modifi- modification should be free to everyone, and if someone wants to do it, it's up to them. There's an element of that for sure. There's an element of the... Um, yeah, that sort of idealism of you know you're mon- you're monetizing something that's 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 holy because it's, it's based on passion, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but of course, that's not entirely a fair accusation because he, he, the the price tags attached to these mods are entirely up to the, mm. the creator. So I can make it whether they want to charge. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But but what what the real issue is 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 one of. Um, uh, quality control like pe- people are out there charging for mods that don't work charging for sometimes stealing other people taking other people's mods copying them and then trying to on-sell those so it's it's actually they've tried to sort of introduce this monetization into what is essentially a, a jungle and without more kind of um controls and sort of you know standardizing and and uh, and and policing 
it hasn't worked. So they've had to actually yoink the whole idea. And, and, oh, really? Yeah, take it back again and sort of step back and kind of go... Right, just readjust it maybe, because it is yeah. kind of one of the ways forward. Absolutely. Looking at what you were talking about last time you were in, uh, about um, people making their own games yeah. and platforms for making your own games, mm. you can see sites being set up where people can put their games up there for sale. So That's right. It does yeah. seem to be a way forward. It just needs to be shaped, I guess. That's right, yeah, yeah. And, and, and the kind of resources needed to actually establish whether... Just from a technical level, whether these products are going to work not only with the game but with each other, you know, with other mods. I think the main concern, though, for all of us, are they wasting too much time on this rather than Valve and Steam getting out the new Half Life game? <laughs> <laughs> Just get on with it. The Half Life game is the white whale of, it of uh, the number three. People are waiting for Half Life 3. They've been waiting for, I don't know if it's ever going to happen. I think it's just it's got to happen. It's <laughs> me. Uh, so, is this kind of like getting a song and adjusting it and covering it and expanding on it is yeah for sure i, I mm. think that's a totally fair sort of analog the, the skyrim is a, is a is a intellectual property it's a game mm-hmm. that bethesda made which is has a kind of mythos and a, and a story and a, and a look and a feel to it and a lot of these mods are, are not discarding that. They're taking that and, and using it as a leaping off point. So it's definitely a collaboration between the public and the games. But I think in the game space, that's that's a, a, a lot more kind of... There's a lot more dialogue going yeah. on and, and it's it's actually very embraced, that kind of thing, when, when the public takes something. And it might be a piece of music. And, you know, I, I love this, this, the, the theme from Journey, so I'm going to go over here and do a, an 8-bit chip tunes version of it. And then the creator of Journey of the Journey music is going to hear that on YouTube and go, oh, I love your work, let's go and collaborate mm-hmm. on this other thing. There's a real dialogue going on that's, that's very vibrant in the games community. So. You know, in the Triple R community right now, they're seeing another side of Scott Edgar. They've heard you on Superfluity, <laughs> they've heard you in Tripod, and now they're going, oh my gosh, this guy is just... Uber nerd. Uber nerd. <laughs> yeah, I'm look, loving it. I'm passionate about uh, various creative pursuits, and uh, <laughs> games are certainly one of those. Thank you for coming in and uh, just absolutely explaining it to me. Now that sentence makes sense. Well, we, so. didn't, get, we didn't quite get into pricing structure, but yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll do that next right. time. That's right. Pricing trends. Thanks so much. Three. Triple. It's always an exciting time in Melbourne. It's always cultural. And from the 1st of 3rd of May at the National Gallery of Victoria is the Melbourne Art Book Fair, a great time of the year. And to give the keynote lecture and another talk is Max Schumann, who's Associate Director of New York's Printed Matter. He's a working artist himself and an international publisher. And he's done his resume is so fat, I won't mention it all. But welcome to the studio, Max. Thank you very much. Now, tell us uh, a little bit about Printed Matter for those of us who are not so familiar, um, Printed Matter is a nonprofit arts organization. In uh, we're based in New York City, and we're basically the the leading resource for artist books in the world, and probably the, one of the oldest as well. We were founded in 1976. So what? Uh, obviously, art books are one of those things that a lot of people have and uh, li- like to buy to, to delve into. But what makes someone want to uh, sell it to the public to to collect and 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 
uh, have something like this going on? Um, I should make a distinction of between art book and artist book because what yes, Printed Matter right. carries is artist books. And the best way – an artist book can be many different things. Mm-hmm. But the best way maybe to describe it in distinction from art books, from conventional art books, is a conventional art book is a book about art. Mm-hmm. And an artist book, the book is the art. Um, so it's where an artist takes a book and uses the form, the space, the concept of the book to realize their work. When did you first start collecting um, Printed Matter doesn't collect. We distribute. Um, so we were set up really in response to this growing phenomenon in the 1970s of many artists doing their work in book form. And the, the artists were doing them in large editions because another aspect of the book that was so attractive to them was it's a form of public art because you can do the books in large editions, sell them for cheaply, and reach a very broad audience. Um, but the problem was then how do they get them out in the world? Mm-hmm. They do these books in editions of 100 or 500 or 1,000 or 2,000. Printed Matter was set up in response to this need for an organization that would facilitate the distribution of getting them out there. Since then, we've really expanded to include a lot of public programming. So our mission is, we're much more than a bookstore. Our mission is really not only the distribution, but also uh, fostering the understanding and appreciation of artist books as well. Yeah, the actual store itself has become a bit of an event space, Mm -hmm. hasn't it? Yeah, we have have up to three events a week. We do exhibitions. We do um, many book fairs, including the, the New York and L.A. art book fair, which have become the large just uh, forms in the world for artist book and art-related publishing. So what are you going to talk about on your keynote address? What, what do you want to tell Victorians? Um, I think I'm going to talk. I'm going to wing it. No, it's going to be... <laughs> you know, of course. With your wealth of knowledge, I'm sure you could. It's, I'm, I guess I'm going to talk about the recent phenomena of, uh, of a new generation of people discovering the book, which is especially interesting in this digital age when we've been hearing about the death of the book. Mm. Um, and uh, we're finding actually the exact opposite. We're seeing a real resurgence in, um, in both artist publishing activity as well as public interest. And so I think I'd like to speak about that and kind of put it into a historical framework as to what drew artists to books in the 1960s and 70s when artists' books were kind of being developed as a contemporary art form in comparison to um, uh, into today's kind of new generation of, um, of digital kids um, really taking to the book as well. How are you involved at, at what level in, in the actual creation of the books or are you, do you stay out of that completely and uh, people just bring their material to you, they've had them printed themselves? Our primary activity at Printed Matter, our primary program, is distribution. So mm-hmm. it is it is uh, uh, responding to books that have already been published. We also do have a publishing program where we do about between four and eight books a year, depending on how much funds we can raise. So people have talked, obviously, about the death of the book and, you know, that it's so alive and so vibrant and so many people are doing interesting things but i'm interested in how people are responding to artist books are they is it something that they are excited about um have you noticed a growth in this area are people becoming more aware yeah i mean i think that's one of the the there's this genuine in the in the young generation there's this genuine kind of curiosity and interest and and it's partly realizing that the experience that you get from a book the social experience the personal experience 
experience of the, the, the physical interaction with a book of turning pages, and especially if it's a book, an artist's experimental book that's really incorporating the full kind of possibilities of the book, which will be the name of the lecture, um, um, is that it's an experience that can't be duplicated on a, in an iBook or an e-book or an iPhone or something like that. It is something that's unique to the or book. Or a Kindle, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's very true, and if you brought up with that medium and that was kind of your only real contact with books, suddenly having something tactile in your hands, particularly, as you say, the art book where, you know, the very surface of the paper, you know, has to be felt to, to, as part of the experience of the book, um, might, you know, would ch- turn people around completely. And I find that the younger generation at the moment are kind of quite into the retro forms they're starting to um, un- understand you know the, the character in, in an actual object yeah I see it as part of uh, there is an aspect of it that's part of this much broader or this large you know social phenomenon of people returning to different analog forms and I think partly it's out of a you know it's it's also probably maybe a nostalgia for an experience that mm. was never actually experienced so it's kind of a weird uh media wormhole kind of thing mm. but um but also i think it is also the realization or the understanding that you know for a generation that's raised on the kind of mantra of you know uh, uh digital information will will move us forward in all these different ways when actually we see a lot of economic and social and political difficulties as bad as they ever were if not worse in other words the the digital revolution did not um, uh, uh, usher in an age of uh, of, of of other kinds of uh, progress. Um, that there are really valuable things in analog forms and the different communities and experiences and um, and other things that they can offer. And that that's another, I think, kind of like political, social, whether conscious or not, um, attraction of of the book and other analog forms to the new generation as well. It says in the bio that you're still a practicing artist. How does that uh, fit in your life? Uh, when you are distributing because I know that someone who's a champion such as yourself of art you know sometimes your own work can get lost in that has that happened to you yeah because I haven't really been making that much art for the last couple of years because the demands of the workplace have gotten really Mm. uh, huge I'm actually acting director now for the last year and a half almost um, of printed matter and we're going through a big surge in growth and so there's a lot of we're actually moving to a new space so it's a very busy busy time for us um but i've been involved in something called the cheap art movement which which is a which uh a loose based international revolution that you'll hear about at some point um where we want to make art inexpensive and cheap and then there'll be no need for galleries and museums and other kinds of things as 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 as, as, as wonderful as it is as the as the ngv is hosting this great uh uh, this event and stuff like that. The, I mean, we should talk about the the book fair that's coming up. It's going to be yeah. it's really astounding. I got a peek of the of the of the layout, um, and there's this great cardboard furniture that's been especially designed for the space. It's completely recyclable, and it looks like there's I think over 50 booths with over 100 publishers. Um, mostly Australian, but also international presence as well. So this is happening in the NGV space. Yeah, and is it? It's free to the public. I yes, it is, and I believe I don't know the exact hours. You should probably post that later on. But there's an yep. opening tonight, and then it runs uh, uh, Saturday and Sunday as well. Now your keynote speech is on Sunday. It is booked out, but you do have a talk that's happening on Saturday from two p.m. three p.m. at NGV the, at Cleminger BBDO Aud- Auditorium. What are you going to be talking about there? 
Um, I think there I'll just kind of talk about the history of printed matter. Uh, printed matter was founded in 1976, and we're part of kind of a something that's been historically identified as the alternative space movement in the U.S. that came about mm-hmm. when nonprofits were able to form in the 1970s, and we're one of a handful of survivors of hundreds of organizations that were set up in the 70s. Um, and so we have our own very specific kind of history of kind of financial and programming and administrative struggle and stuff that I recently curated a big ex- co-curated a big exhibition about, mm. and so I think I'll just ramble a little bit about the <laughs> specifics of what it's like, uh, you know, starting and, and keeping going a small nonprofit in New York. We'd love to hear more. I no, wish we could talk to you forever. Uh, the, of course, the Melbourne Art Book Fair on from the first to third of May at the National Gallery of Victoria. We're talking to Max Schumann, acting director of New York's Printed Matter, an artist himself. He'll be giving a great talk, uh, two p.m. to three p.m. tomorrow at the NGV. Thanks so much for coming in and talking with us. Thank you. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.